something can't be actually tragic if there isn't an order behind it. That what tragedy brings out is the wrongness of things, among other things. But there can't be wrongness unless there's something uh, against which it can be found to be wrong or bent or broken. Mm-hmm. So if you want to kind of go all the way into, you know, total darkness, then in a way you're not really tragic anymore. It's just absurd. And it's just pure Heraclitus flux and no meaning, no order, and therefore no wrongness. It's just maybe painful, but it's not tragic. Hey, everyone. You're listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss how literature can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I am your host, Jennifer Frey. I am an associate professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. In this episode, I am joined by fellow philosopher and defender of Philosophia Perennis, Kevin Combo of Hope College, to discuss Sophocles' tragedy, Oedipus Rex. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Sacred and Profane Love. I'm happy to welcome Kevin Combo back to the podcast this morning. If you're a patron of the podcast, then you know that I chatted with Dr. Combo back in September about Plato's Symposium. And if you want to listen to that episode, you can, of course, become a Patreon for as little as two bucks a month. You just go to patreon.com slash eudaimoniapod and set yourself up with that. But anyway, I'm really excited to have him back for a regular episode, and we're going to be talking about Sophocles' Oedipus Rex alongside an essay by Louise Cowan titled The Tragic Abyss. Welcome back to the podcast, Kevin. Thank you very much. It's a delight. I'm excited to do this. Yeah, I am too. I'm super excited. Yeah, so I just thought we could start with the Cowan essay. I really loved this essay, but it just raises so many questions But look, why did you want to talk about this essay? You know, what insights into the tragic do you think it conveys? So I guess there were maybe two things that struck me pretty quickly because she's clearly someone who who knows the whole tradition quite well. And she does point out that many of us who sort of study tragedy are kind of locked into the Aristotelian picture, the, the, the definition of tragedy that you might have in the poetics. So it's this imitation of action, affecting catharsis to f- through fear and pity and so on. And I like how she sort of comes in and says, well, this is important because obviously it was picked up by the medievals in the, I guess, late 15th century. But tragedy in some ways is bigger and deeper than just the Aristotelian definition. And mm-hmm. maybe we should sort of apply some pressure to that and see if it still works. And what I appreciated is she sort of says, well, the imitation stuff is maybe not as important because what is really interesting about tragedy is this sense that there's some kind of darkness behind the imitation or behind the action that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. And she calls yeah. it like an icon, but it's, it's an icon of darkness or something, I guess she's trying to say, uh, which is an interesting idea to me because icons typically we think there's something bright behind and the light is coming mm-hmm. through. But here you sort of have an apophatic icon that maybe reveals not only human brokenness, but even a kind of brokenness in the world. And how are we supposed to react to that? Um, And how does it, and what kind of purification happens? Right. So she thinks tragedy is not so much like an imitation of human action. Mm -hmm. She calls it a liturgical confrontation of a deep seated dread 
which when brought to light can be born only through the medium of poetic language. And so it's this idea that it's a liturgy, a kind of public performance, which is obviously lost if you're, if you, if you're just picking up a copy and reading it, um, (laughs) it's not likely to have the same effect as seeing it. Just, just to be clear, she thinks it's a kind of, yeah, liturgy. And she also says, this is towards the end of the essay, she also says the tragedy is less about what's going on than it is about its effect right. on the, I don't know if she would say viewer or, right. or, or what. It seems to be both the viewer and maybe even the city or the polis, right? So it's both the purification That's of the right. viewer and the purification of the polis. That's right. Yeah. And she, she does talk about it in this kind of purgatorial language. Like it's going to cleanse your soul. It's going to renew the polis. I mean, it's really going to do a lot here. So I want to, I want to ultimately get to this idea that it's liturgical because I feel like I only half understand what she means there. But I think there's also this emphasis, which I find incredibly appealing. She talks about the, the tragic, tragic art as having these moments of unmasking, Right. right? Where the veil is lifted, but what you see isn't, you know... It's, it's very dark. She, yeah. she talks about it. It's like a, it's like an epiphanic event, but it's very dark and chilling. And so she says, for a moment, right, one looks beyond the boundaries of ordinary awareness and glimpses the caverns of a lightless abyss. And you're like, yeah, that's very heavy. Super heavy. And so... The way I think of it, and I'm not 100% sure what she does with this, cause, and it's a nice thing because those of us who are philosophers, sometimes when we deal with literature, we go so fast from the story or the action to those sort of big themes, and we just want to do the theme thing. Right. And I think when, by highlighting the importance of the liturgy aspect and the performance aspect, she says, yeah, guys, it's primarily, well, maybe not primarily, but necessarily we have to sort of enter into this uh, the same way you'd enter into a liturgy. So it's bodily, it's about seeing, it's about hearing, it's about being immersed in an experience. And then from that, where's where things get really interesting, is you have these unveilings and unmaskings. And for me, it's striking because usually I'm thinking in a sort of platonic framework and usually when Plato people are talking about recollection and things like this, that we, we are into unmasking and unveiling. But the things that are being unmasked and unveiled are hopefully the forms, which are bright and beautiful and nice, mm-hmm. and they're giving right. inte- intelligibility and order to the world, and that's fantastic. But here what's unveiled is we come to see the dark stuff, in, in both in us and in the world. And I think it's kind of important that someone's doing this sort of thing, right? That um, there's a recognition that there is a darkness in us and we are sort of struggling with this in various ways, day to day, let's say. And by entering into tragedy, we are able to confront this in a way that is hopefully purifying. 
Um, and so maybe we become more humble or maybe we become uh, more wise in, in a sort of interesting kind of way. Yeah, so she t- she puts it in terms of wisdom. Yeah. Um. So that you know the the sort of like a purifying fire or something, and it's supposed to end up in some kind of some kind of wisdom. Like if there's something right. that you know that is sufficiently important, so as to yep. constitute a kind of wisdom. But look, what is the darkness that is unveiled? I mean, sometimes when, in fact. There's an earlier episode of this podcast. I think it's episode eight where we talk about another a tragedy of Sophocles, which is the women of Trachis. Yeah. And there the essay was Bernard Williams, who I adore. And <laughs> he he talks about tragedy as sort of like grist for his anti-theory mill. Right. So yeah. he's so he's a philosopher that thinks the very idea of morality is is very problematic <laughs> and not in like a weird Nietzschean way. Like it's not like an Ubermensch thing, but it's more just like it's just not real to human life. Right. And one reason that it's not real to human life is that it implies a kind of rational control that is an illusion. Right. Right. And so he thinks like what tragedy really kind of makes clear is the extent to which we're just not in control of our lives. Yeah. And so is that the dark thing that she's worried about or is she even attuned to that or would she just say something else? I think she'd go further. So, um, because she talks about this idea that not only, I mean, I think she would agree we're not in control. So number one, there's a way in which this world is out of, outside of our control and there's a darkness and brokenness to it. But what is really interesting to me is she says, ultimately, um, so just kind of reading from one of the pages here, she says, tragedy goes even deeper than these statements would indicate. So she's talking about Freud and Marita and whatever. And she says, it dredges up something from the bottomless pit. And to see the thing itself could mark the full for the fulfillment of the Dies Irae, the day of wrath, the whisper, thou art the man. And because this final accusation is never quite realized in actual life, this is why we have tragedy. So I think for her, it's this notion of that accusation. So the Williams thing might be, we're not in control. I think the Cowan thing is to say, it's your fault. <laughs> that... Yeah, so it's, it's a little bit more Christian, I yeah. think. Yeah. Because I'm not sure that she ever says it, but she seems to be talking about original sin. Yes, I think that's right. And she talks about, you know, we have this memory of an original cataclysm or original fault. Uh, Maybe she doesn't use the word primordial, not original. So she talks in a way that sounds very original sin-like. But even in a way, and sorry to do this, even someone like um, Neoplatonists sometimes talk like this, like, Plotinus might say, the soul down here is down here because it did something wrong. It might be yeah. destined mm-hmm. to be in a body, but it's also here because it did something wrong. Or Aristophanes' speech in the symposium, that human beings did something wrong. And yeah. that's why things are the way they are now. So it's Christian, kind of Neoplatonist, Plat- Platonic, uh, but it's we feel the weight of that accusation that we've been. It's not that 
life is out of our control, but it's also more we've been found out. <laughs> so the accusation, yeah. does that take the form of like a verdict, like a judgment? Oh. Are we talking about guilt Yeah. or what? Because there's, a, I mean, obviously with Original Sin, there there is yeah. this idea of, of culpa. Obviously, there are a lot of original sin substitutes out there. Yes. You know, there are original sin substitutes and fraud. There, yeah. I mean, it's, but, but there it's just a sense that, like, hey, we're kind of messed up. And that's really before anything else. <laughs> just a baseline yeah. uh, messed up inness. <laughs> but that doesn't connote like guilt, right? Because it no. could just be like, a weird blip of evolutionary mechanism that yes. we're just messed up. Yeah, yeah. But the idea of an accusation yes. implies, I don't know, a verdict, a judgment, a sense yeah. of guilt. Is that? I, th I think that is correct, that for sure there's a sense of guilt. I mean, she talks about it both in the sense of communal guilt, so there's just a, a guilt that we have as humans, which again goes back to a very strong notion of original sin, but then when she's thinking about more classical, let's say, tragic characters, she says uh, this line, we should have to say rather that Job's and Oedipus's and Leah's situation is much worse. What each confronts is something that elicits his self-condemnation. So that we realize that we're, this is on page 11, that we are guilty in our own eyes. So it's not just that someone else has given the verdict that we're guilty, but the way the tragedy works is it actually gets you around to saying, yes, even in my own eyes, I am guilty. And that's maybe a lot of the force from it because we can't, we have to submit to that judgment, which is obviously a judgment that's objective, but it's also object, uh, a judgment that is subjectively recognized and submitted to or something. Mm, yeah. Okay. I want to come back to that when we yeah. actually talk about Oedipus Rex. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, because some philosophers, I think Hannah Arendt is one of them, think that the idea of collective guilt is yeah. literally unintelligible. Right. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. She does definitely talk about it in terms of culpability. Yeah. So like on page 16, she says, in ordinary human life, human beings have a secret but unexamined yeah. awareness of an imperfection in the frame of things and of their own implication in it, yeah. along with the intuition that they will ultimately be held accountable for it, right? And so she says, like, oh, comedy takes this external view, and her her exemplar of the, the comic <laughs> writer is Dante. Yep. So comedy in that sense. But then she says, you know, the view of the tragic is internal, Right. Through its agency, mm -hmm. one is made to see from within the soul a potential experience as though it were taking place, right, in oneself. Yep. And, you know, then she talks about tragedy as allowing us to have a momentary glimpse of a ruined cosmos. Yes. And then, obviously, this momentary glimpse, right, which in part is also... It's also about suffering because when right. she asks, she's, she sort of poses the question very explicitly, like, what does, and this is, you know, within the literary form. 
So she's like, look, what does the tragic protagonist actually accomplish when he descends into the vasty deeps of darkness? Yeah. Right. What What is happening there that's actually like worthy of our attention? Yeah. And she says, like, you all, for a moment, we see that the gods look on with bright interest and admiration watching yeah. the sufferings of human beings yes. that elevates them to an almost godlike standing. Yeah. So it it also has somehow to do with forbearance. I mean just bearing yes. absolute suffering. Ab- exactly. Yeah, the spectacle of absolute suffering and that's oddly enough she wants to say that's godlike. Right. So that's kind of left unexplained. Yes. I mean, there's a lot in this essay that's left unexplained. You yeah. know, it's an essay that makes a lot of very intriguing statements. But Lots it doesn't of fireworks, really... but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what, I mean, yeah. So that's another thing to just kind of highlight as we yeah. go into talking about an actual very tragedy. famous tragedy. Yeah. Is like, how is this suffering godlike? How is it purgative? Or leading to wisdom. Yeah. And, you know, what does that have to do with the liturgical aspect of it? And also, and this I think is the main question for me, is what does it have yeah. to do with the guilt? Right. Uh, yeah, it's it's tricky because if, you, I mean, when we read, for example, the Iliad or something, one of the things that's striking is the gods might be able to experience pain, right? Someone, you know, spears your pinky or something and you're a god, that might be painful. But the gods don't seem to have real suffering, whereas the humans are suffering all over the place uh, in various ways. Achilles, Hector, um, Agamemnon, Menelaus in sort of minor ways, Priam in a great way. Uh, so you get the sense that suffering is really majorly a human thing, say, in, in the Iliad, but with the tragedies, it's, it's more complicated because you have all these suffering heroes, but sometimes the, the suffering is so interesting that it gives them sort of like a divine status. And that's, to me, to, to explain that from a Greek perspective is just very hard for me. To explain it from a Christian perspective is, is way easier uh, because, okay, here we have a God who's chosen to suffer and has sort mm-hmm. of, has deified suffering. Whereas the Greek picture of godlikeness and blessedness suffering is not really a crucial uh, actually it's it seems contrary to the idea that you want divinities that are somehow impassable right and untouchable ultimately the forms the demiurge whatever these are blessed yeah. happy etc yeah so the idea that this is deifying this kind of suffering it doesn't doesn't work for me in the Greek picture. Right, okay, But I can good. see how the Greek picture is maybe an anticipation of the Christian picture, but that's obviously, I think maybe Cowan is doing that. Okay, yeah, so, yeah, it's like Augustine reading the Psalms. Yeah. So, okay, it's really explicit in, yeah. say, Epicurus, you know, yeah. where his whole idea of ataraxia mm-hmm. is explicitly modeled on trying to be as much like the gods as a human being can. Mm -hmm. And that is this kind of quasi Zen like, you know, state of being where it's not, you know, it's such a mistaken view of Epicurus that he's just all, all about the pleasure (laughs) 
I mean, in some sense, it's true, like all misleading yeah. things. Right. But it's it's also just really misleading because it turns out he he mostly just wants you to not feel pain. Right. Exactly. Right. And that is the godlike condition. Right. right? Yeah. They don't they don't suffer. Nope. And I think there are elements of this in, in Aristotle as well, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you know, and he, I think, makes it explicit in his discussion. Um, this is somewhere in his discussion of friendship when he's yeah. talking about just the, <laughs> yes. the, the chanciness of human happiness. Right. He's like, yeah, of course we want to. And of course, eudaimonia, the most literal translation is blessedness, yeah. meaning like yeah. the gods. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, you know, with human beings, it's always chancy. Just look at Priam. Exactly. But also you just might be born ugly or something. <laughs> and there's just no hope. And you're, you're kind of screwed. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and I think that's important to contrast against, I mean, the last paragraph that Cowan has is to me is just really striking. It goes about halfway down that last paragraph. She says, the tragic hero suffers not in silence, but in the most opulent and expressive language the world has known. Mm-hmm. That is not Socrates dying. That is not the stoic sage on the torture machine. Right. <laughs> These yeah. are people who have control of their souls, who have realized that the passing things will not get deep into their hearts and so they can bear it. Yeah. This yeah. doesn't sound like the Greek ideal. Well, it's also not like Epicurus, you know, yeah. dying of kidney stones and just being like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, man. <laughs> like, it's cool. Could be worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so I think another, you know, thing to possibly come back to is yeah. just how, how Christian is this vision of tragedy. Right. And, you know, because she, she sort of talks about Job Right. And Oedipus Rex yes. and and King Lear, as if it's just all a you, it's, it's all, a all piece, together, right? Yeah. It's, it's all it's all part of the tragic vision, and that I mean, I'm actually like really attracted to the idea that there is something in virtue of which, like, yeah. we call all of these t- tragic, right? But it might be a kind of analogical thing. <laughs> Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and then if it's an analogical <laughs> thing, actually that raises the question of what's the paradigmatic yes. case. But at any rate, that's just getting to That'd be sorry. fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And... We, that would that would take us down a real rabbit hole. So probably let's not do that. <laughs> we'll be responsible this morning. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So is there anything else you want to say about this essay before we just kind of plunge into Sophocles? Uh, I mean, just one more thing that's kind of also struck me in her articulation is she also has this notion of isolation. So the tragic hero goes into the abyss alone, uh, which I think is a sort of an important thing that while she is willing to grant that, yeah, communal guilt is real and there's going to be a kind of purification of the polis, what's she, it struck me quite strongly, and this was um, pretty early on. Yeah, page four, okay. right at the top. Uh, she says, uh, one protagonist who must go alone to face the abyss. Um, and in a way, you can easily see Antigone in this. We can see Oedipus in this. We can see Job in this. Uh, we could even see maybe even Socrates and Jesus in this. So the, maybe this is, you know, part of it that 
the solitariness of the abyss that you, you, you don't really take friends in there with you. But at the same time, the Christian version is you're not totally alone. And so mm. that's going to be an interesting maybe distinction that mm-hmm. that is sort of worth worth considering. But the whole even, you know, Jesus on the cross, why, why have you forsaken me? It's, it's kind of that's a tr- sort of tragic cry in some ways, according to the picture that she's painting here. And and so the solitariness is, is also striking because philosophers, we like talking, especially those of us who are sort of Aristotelian, Platonic philosophers, like friendship, like shared things, like kinship, like common goods and all of that stuff. But she's saying there's an important part of human experience that's incredibly solitary. And it's good for us to contemplate this. And that also helps purify us, make us better. And, mm-hmm. and that's kind of striking to me as well. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. That's good. All right, Oedipus, Oedipus the king. Yes. Yeah. So this is one of those stories that people know, even if they've never read it. They just know because somehow it has remained, I think, a stable part of cultural currency. Yeah. Thank you, Freud. Maybe. Do you think it's Freud? Yeah. No, I I hope not. I really hope not. (laughs) um, I mean, obviously, that's a a part of it. Yeah. But maybe just, just in case. But it's also really good. Oh, oh yeah, just in case. <laughs> just, just in case someone um, is crawling out of a cave. Yeah. So because awakening been... from dogmatic slumber. Okay. That's uh, right. Yeah. So maybe we should just go over the the highlights. The story. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So Oedipus is the current king of Thebes. He is thought to be a foreigner and he was made king because he was able to beat the Sphinx, which was a monster that was terrorizing the city, shortly after, around the time the previous king died. And uh, he's king. And then years after that, there's some kind of pollution in the city. And so the land, the people, the animals, the crops are all suffering. And the people come to Oedipus once again, looking for a solution. Wait, because... do you mean pollution like literally like a smog or do you mean like in some kind of <laughs> symbolic sense? <laughs> I think it's I think it's both really. Uh, okay. So let's see, because right at the beginning, so this is the priest speaking and he's speaking to Oedipus and he's making the plea and he tells him this is around line 22 or something. King, you yourself have seen our city reeling like a wreck already. It can scarcely lift its prow out of the depths, out of the bloody surf. A blight is on the fruitful plants of the earth. A blight is on the cattle in the fields. A blight is on our women that no children are born to them. A god that carries fire, a deadly pestilence is on our town. So it's like an ecological disaster. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, but obviously yeah, I has wasn't sure. moral significance. I wasn't, I wasn't sure if it was like literally a plague. I mean, I think it is. Uh, but I mean, it's it's both, right? It's there's there's been a crime, and this crime has polluted the land. Mm-hmm. And because otherwise, why are the priests and the people there complaining, right? And and so Oedipus is once again he's the guy who has to save the city, and he decides, well, uh, we need word from Apollo, sort of from the oracle, to tell us what's up. And the oracle that comes back is confusing because it only says, well, the guy who killed the previous king <laughs> is actually still in Thebes and des- needs to be punished. 
And mm-hmm. so then that kicks off the whole thing. So Oedipus puts on his investigator hat and decides he's going to track down this guy and punish him appropriately so that he can purify the city. Right. And so then he talks with Tiresias the prophet, who actually accuses him, and so they have a, they have a fight. He talks with Creon, who's his brother-in-law. He talks with his wife. But everyone he talks to, they're all trying to help him, mm. which is part of the genius of the play for me because the antagonism is so subtle because everyone is actually trying to help the situation. He himself is trying to solve a problem. And as this unfolds, uh, it turns out that Oedipus, in fact... And right at the beginning, he put a curse upon the murderer <laughs> of the previous right. king. And so as it unfolds, it turns out he is, in fact, the murderer. And he murdered the, the king that he murdered was his father. And he took her queen, which is to say he now took his mother as his wife. And then the children that he bore with her are therefore his siblings. And he comes to recognize this. So there's an unveiling, an unmasking. And he shrinks from the horror of this. And so we have this sort of memorable thing. He pokes out his eyes and, uh, and it ends. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's it. But it's, the thing is incredibly economical. There's relatively few characters. And you just mm-hmm. feel the tension of this guy who's trying to do right by the city, but is unaware of the... So the beauty is the crime has already happened. When the, when the play starts, the crime is done. So it's really purely mm-hmm. about discovery. And... What does he do with that discovery at the end? And you can see him sl- slowly come to be more and more aware that maybe he's the man. And remarkably, he keeps going up to even maybe torturing a guy at the end so that oh, he yeah. can confirm that, yes, you are the man. Yeah. So this is like a difference between him and his mother wife. Yes. I didn't yet know <laughs> that it's his mother wife. But, his mother wife. I love it. Yes. You know. <laughs> Not to be confused with a sister wife. But, um, <laughs> yeah, so she's like, you need to knock it off. Yes, yes. Several right? people I mean, tell him to knock it off. She's kind of like, hey, you know what? Sometimes ignorance is bliss. Yes. And you you need to knock it off, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and he pushes on. That's right. That's right, because he wants to know. Yeah. So, like, even when he... Like, there's, like, this initial kind of dread... Yes. ...that he feels when... It's like, like somebody... I can't remember who it was. But somebody describes, like, something that happens at this certain place, and he's like, whoa, hold up. Yes. Like, what? <laughs> Say that again? <laughs> And he's like, I, that sounds familiar. Yeah, the crossroads. Um, Someone brings up the crossroads right. and he thinks, oh, yeah, I did meet some guys at the crossroads. So you're telling me when I was at the crossroads and I killed someone at the crossroads and the old king died at the crossroads? Huh. <laughs> yeah, he's kind of like, uh-oh, am I the baddie? You know? He yes. has this moment. Like, <laughs> yep. wait. I mean, this this really, like, spurs him on. Like, yeah. he wants to know if he's the baddie. Yes. And I think a lot of people yeah. wouldn't have that reaction. No. Right? They no. might, like, like when in that sense of initial dread, they might be like, yeah, maybe we'll find another way around this yes. plague. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or they just don't want to, I mean, when, I, I just, I just think there's this natural human impulse 
Well, maybe they're competing human impulses. So on right. the one hand, there's a natural human impulse to like, you know, know things or right. get to the bottom things. Yeah. But that's like really easy to pursue and everything's right. fine. But as soon as that starts to get incredibly inconvenient or right. just scary, a lot of people are like, oh, you know, maybe yeah. I'll Is there another something. way? Yeah. Well, is, is there something else we can do? And it's, it's crucial to me because several people try this. Tiresias, the prophet, is the first guy who shows up. And Tiresias just tells him directly, you're the murderer. Well, no, Tiresias initially says, I don't want to tell you. Uh, I am burdened by knowledge. I am burdened by wisdom. So it's really interesting that this notion that goes throughout the whole play of, of wisdom and knowledge as a burden. And Tiresias says, it's better for you if I don't tell you. And Oedipus right. thinks, you're trying, to, you're trying to get in the way of my investigation. This must mean right. you're complicit. <laughs> so then Tiresias gets angry and says, no, I'm not complicit. It's because it's you. And Oedipus just like, no, of course it's not me. I know myself. Right. And then we get uh, Creon, blah, 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 blah. But when Jocasta comes and she brings up the, I think she's the one who names for the first time the crossroads. Mm-hmm. He becomes to think, oh, interesting. That's that's problematic. She too says, do not pursue this. And he says, I, I have to do this. And what's interesting to me is, you're right, that there's this desire that human has. Yeah, you know, I mean, Aristotle, right? All men uh, by nature desire to know. That we like knowing stuff, we are curious, and so on. But there's also, now this gets... A little creepy, maybe, but maybe we're sort of in abyss territory. There are ways that we have a kind of unhealthy curiosity in our own perversity. And so mm, there, there, sure. might, there might also be a kind of, is it me? That might be exciting sort of energy oh, there do as you, well. Yeah, okay. So your understanding it's a kind of curiositas? I mean, it could be both. Right. So because on the one hand, when I teach this to sort of help the students just kind of enter into it sort of straightforwardly, I say, well, think of this as the first detective story, okay, where you have a dead body. And so you have the what and then the whole thing is, you know, who did it? When did they do it? Well, you you kind of know the when. So who did it? How do they do it? Why do they do it? And mm-hmm. so this is basically, you know, it's kind of like a genre of genre fiction that it's the det- first detective story and off we go. And so he is the he's the detective. Oddly enough, he's also the criminal and he doesn't know that. So, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so it's incredibly yeah. postmodern in some ways, if you think about it, or at least an anticipation of kind of weird sort of narrative things. But it's told kind of straight because there are no weird dreams. He's not taking any drugs. Uh, no one's really deceiving him. It's straight. And, but then you have to wonder what's happening to him interiorly as these clues bubble up. Uh-huh. And he has, to, he has to face them. And he keeps talking about how there's a necessity that I have to face this. I have to see this. And sometimes I wonder, is this virtuous, pure pursuit of understanding? Or to what extent is this also a kind of enchantment with our own perversion? And I want to see how bad I really am. (laughs) Well, I mean, why can't it be both? Of course, right, right. I think it's probably both, yeah. Because, you know, I think on the one hand, people do want to understand themselves. Yeah. You know, prima facie. Yeah. And... He wants to know if it's him. Yeah. 
And like, you know, maybe there's a separate question whether or not you share that knowledge or like what you do with it. <laughs> yes. But yes, like he yes. just needs to know. And I think that, I mean, we can all understand that. Like you yeah. just need to know yeah. the value of self-knowledge. Right. I think it's just basic. It's yeah. not instrumental. It's just good in itself to, right. to know yourself. Mm-hmm. Maybe above all else. Yeah. And he has this drive, even though people are like warning him. Yes. Like, hey, maybe, maybe that's not going to end well. You know, I think at least in some cases, the warning is to protect Oedipus from the truth. Right. Yeah. Which is also understandable because as a parent, you right. know, you're always, it's some point, you're just, you just naturally want to protect your kids from the horrible truth of right. human life. Yes. <laughs> You're always negotiating, right? What do, what do I share? What do I tell them? What yeah. do I not tell them? Yeah. And it's kind of like, yeah, you're probably just not ready for that. Yeah. You know? And this is why it's so hard with a big family. It's like... <laughs> No, no silos. Uh, <laughs> Somehow the conversation is always dragged down to like a four-year-old level. But <laughs> but at any rate, I think he... Well, I, so this question about, you know, is Oedipus virtuous? Right. I mean, he's a mixed bag, Of course, right? yeah. And I think, obviously, it's sort of like a trope in discussions of Oedipus Rex to right. talk about his tragic flaw. Right. Which I think is often, right, supposed to be his hubris. Something like that, yeah. And I'm not, I mean, what do we think? I mean, is that diagnosis correct? Yeah. Is uh, it just that he's so confident that yeah. he can figure it out and save the day, that yeah. he's, like, not clued into what's really happening? You know, he, I mean, like, on the one hand, it's true. Like, he's not listening to people. Mm-hmm. He's not, he's not really taking anybody's advice. Yeah. But then on the other hand, maybe their advice is bad, right? Exactly, yeah. Because, they're, <clears throat> because they are preventing him from getting to the bottom of things, from confronting reality. Right, so the hubris thing, I mean, obviously he's, he's kind of rash in the sense that he often, you see several times how he's acted even before other people have even disclosed to him what they want to reveal. So, for example, really early on, when the people come to complain, he begins, and it's, it's you know, it's a line, and they, they want to tell him, you know, the city is sick, and we need you to help us. And he replies, and the responses are so characteristic of him, <clears throat> because this is now, I think, line 57 or so, or 58, <clears throat> he says, I pity you children, because he's kind of a pretty condescending sort of dude, because he's continually talking about how much he pities other people, and uh, mm-hmm. he speaks to them sort of from, I'm the master, you're the children, etc. So, I pity you children, you have come full of longing, but I have known the story before you told it. You are all sick, Yet there is none of you, sick though you are, who's as sick as I am. You're like, oh, oh, interesting. And then he explains, I've already began to take action. I've already sent Creon to the Oracle. So he's a man of action. He's a man of condescension of a kind. But he's in a pos- but he is in a position of authority. He is the king. He has custody of the common good. So on and so forth. 
And a lot of the things he does are actually the right thing to do. So he is right to send someone to Apollo. He is right to send for the messenger. He is right to interrogate people. The one place where his blindness comes clearly is maybe with Tiresias. Because Tiresias says, well, clearly, you're the, you're the murderer. And he says, well, I can't be the murderer. And there's just no way that is right. My students, when they read that section, they seem to think, well, of course you believe the prophet. <laughs> but what they don't appreciate is, well, Tiresias was not able to beat the Sphinx. So the prophet is not always reliable. Just because he's been reliable once in the past or many times in the past doesn't mean he's being reliable now. And Gerard has this nice article where he says, we should think of prophets like experts, like, like forecasters that public health experts <laughs> in, the in the middle of a pandemic, right? They are in a pandemic. Oh, okay. This is a great pandemic tragedy. And the expert comes and says, this is what is wrong and this is what you have to do. Well, yeah, sure, you listen, but he's not obviously correct. <laughs> yeah. Especially if he hasn't been there the last time there was an issue uh, and didn't come through for the city. So it makes sense that Oedipus is not obviously going to say, I believe the prophet is right. And Jocasta also has reasons for thinking the prophet is not obviously right. So how do you move in a zone where there's competing authorities, none of them is entirely reliable, and a lot of them are telling you, are getting in the way of your pursuing what seems to be the right course of action, discover the truth, deal with, and deal with the criminal. Uh, yeah, so I think it's just, it's way more, I mean, yes, he's got a, a flaw, but I don't think it's going to be that tragic flaw. I think this is more, he's in a trap, because... yeah. It's already happened. The, the crime already happened. This is not about the bad thing he did. This is about the discovery of the bad thing. Yeah, I mean, the weight of fate yeah. is fair. I mean, I always, like, yeah. it's not just that I feel sorry for Oedipus, <laughs> though obviously I do. It's that I'm kind of like, I like him better yeah. than any of the other characters in this because yeah. he's he seems like a... He seems like a good guy. He's trying, you know, to, do the, like, he's trying to do the work. <laughs> yeah, and even, it's totally, and even this passage that you read where you're like, oh, maybe that's arrogant. I don't even read it yeah. that way. Okay. Like, yeah. like he's basically just saying, look, I suffer so much more because I bear the weight of responsibility. Yeah, yeah. And like, I'm the one that has to, like the buck stops here kind right. of thing. Like, I, yeah, I, heavy is the head. <laughs> And yeah, I mean, that is a kind of, I mean, he acknowledges their suffering. Yes. But he's like, trust me, this is way worse for me because <laughs> I am actually responsible for your suffering and I have to fix it. And yeah. so like, this is a very heavy thing. And I think that he's not being cute there. Okay. I think that he is being legit. And unless you can present some evidence that he's not being legit there. No, um, I think he's being legit. But I think part of his legit thing is he clearly thinks of himself as the one who has to fix things. The one who is sort of, um, he's going to take the whole problem onto his shoulders. And he yeah. seems to think, I have the capacity to deal with this. Yeah, and well, I mean... It's a little tricky. It's a little tricky. Uh, well, it turns out he doesn't. <laughs> it turns out he doesn't, yeah. Because it turns out he can't, he can't fix this. Yes. But is it reasonable yeah. to expect him 
I mean, I think what's so powerful about this play is yeah. that it's not reasonable, actually, to expect him to have done any different than what he did. Yeah, I think that is correct. Uh, he has one path in this one. That's it's, it's, it's almost a perfect play. There's no other outcome for a noble man to pursue. You have to get onto this road and follow it, and at the end is your is your destruction. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, and that what I and that's why I don't like the tragic flaw stuff because yeah. I'm like, well, that's a little bit too pat, isn't yeah. it? He's actually like given everything he could possibly know, yeah. except for maybe the. I mean, let's set aside his reaction to Tiresias. Yes. I mean, maybe that's yeah. the only really truly questionable spot. Yeah. But that would have been questionable for anyone, right? Sure, yes, yes, I'll grant that. Mm -hmm. If we know anything, it's that absolute deference to experts isn't awesome. <laughs> no. <laughs> but <laughs> but if, if you buy the profit is expert thing, yeah. which I, I'm not sure that I buy, but just set that aside. Okay, no um, worries. But maybe this relates to the theme of, you know, sight and blindness. Yeah. Because, yeah, it's like there are certain things that he's not seeing. Right. But is it reasonable to expect him to have seen that? So obviously there can be a kind of culpable lack of vision. Right. Right. If I walk into a room and, like, I don't notice that someone is suffering and so I do nothing, right. that's on me. I should have noticed. Right. It should have registered with me. Yeah. So maybe he's blind to certain things, but the question is, is that a fault? And then obviously at the end, he blinds himself. Yes. He takes his mother-wife's brooch <laughs> or yeah. like jewelry yeah. and stabs out his eyes. Uh -huh. And it's weird because like the, the end of the play, you just have to imagine like, yeah. <laughs> this, with um, eyeless. <laughs> eyeless with eye goo coming out of the eye yeah, sockets. Just, yes. uh, he's probably wearing a blindfold on stage. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And he's, he's like still doing stuff. Yeah. Anyway. He still has deep thoughts. Wild. That's right. Yeah. Well, isn't he also like talking to his kids and stuff? And he's talking to his kids. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, he, he blinds himself, mm -hmm. which is obviously deeply symbolic. Right. So what's your read of that act? Yeah. So there's a couple of things that are interesting to me in that. And one is the symbolic thing, right? That he's going to be now outwardly what he was inwardly. So Tiresias early on accuses him of blindness. And then in the end, he's literally blind. And I think one of the things that maybe he is blind to in a more culpable way, especially as a leader is that he should have a better appreciation at least this is maybe i'm being judgy and it's easy to make it's easy to, to critique leaders when you're when you're at home in your couch but mm -hmm. to have a sense that um the things that are happening and this maybe going back to williams in a way are out of our control and mm -hmm. and he might have too so, too strong a sense of his capacity to control the situation and bring it to a happy end, and partly this is I think in, is is led down this path I think by the priest early on because the priest says you're so great, you took care of the Sphinx, uh, this is line thirty five, you came and by your coming saved our city, 
freed us from tribute which we paid of old to the Sphinx, cruel singer. This you did in no virtue of knowledge that we could give you, in virtue of no teaching. It was a God that aided you, men say, and you held with God's assistance, so on and so forth. So he is kind of self-led, maybe with divine assistance, but clearly the people were useless, <laughs> is, is the way mm -hmm. they tell the story. And that might be right, but it shouldn't be always right. Just because you might know better doesn't mean you stop listening. And there's this difficulty of, especially for human beings, knowing the difference about when you're acting for your, acting in your interest and acting uh, against your interest. And this is just part of this moral life in general. The many of the things that we pursue that we think are good for us are in fact bad for us. And he just he's just quite not not aware of that possibility. And and he's so sure that I'm going to fight for Laius, <laughs> King Laius, the previous king, as if I were fighting for my own father. I mean, the irony is in that. So when he finally blinds himself, to me, it's both a symbol, symbolism of, yes, oh my goodness, I have, I am outwardly what I was inwardly. But also more interesting to me is this notion of, has he finally come face to face with something that he now acknowledges he cannot endure. Because shortly, oddly now, yeah, shortly after the blinding, he says something which is, this is line 14, um, 14, 14, 14, 15. He says, he's talking to his daughters, I think, deign to touch me for all my wretchedness, do not fear. No man but I can bear my evil doom. So this is actually maybe touching the Cowan position about isolation and loneliness and you have to go solitary down this path. But he says, only I can bear it, but it seems you're not able to bear it. And mm. you took out your eyes and, and taking out the eyes means, among other things, he puts himself into total darkness. And, mm -hmm. he, and he says, I would have even have put out my ears <laughs> if I wasn't stopped or if I didn't think that that would have been crazy. So he, he talks as if I was about to make almost like a tomb out of my own body, that I would remove my eyes, I would remove my ears, I would cut off myself essentially from other people in the world, except for touch, because to... I don't know how one would undo touch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Unless you're, yeah. You're, the, you're the bottom of the inferno or something and it's ice cold and you're totally numb. But, uh, right. but this idea of being cut off entirely, isolated again ties with the beginning of he took on this burden as only his own as he was the one solely responsible and i think that broke him uh eventually well yeah i mean there's the, uh, around 1370 yeah. i mean he's very explicit like i cannot bear to look yes so he says that what is done was not done for the best seek not to teach me counsel me no more i know not how i could have gone to Hades and with these eyes have looked upon my father or on my mother such things have I done to them death or how could I look for pleasure in the sight of my own children born as they were born never no pleasure there for eyes of mine nor in the city nor its battlements nor sacred images yeah. from these ah miserable I the most nobly born of any Theban right yeah. and so he's just like there is like on the one hand, he's like, how can I look at the, you know, how can I look on the ruin? How can I look at my family members knowing that 
how can I look on my father knowing I murdered him? Yeah. How can I look on my children knowing that they're products of incest? Like yes. it's, I mean, like literally yeah. almost every taboo is broken. It's broken here. Yeah. Here. All that, all that was lacking but, was cannibalism. And then we'd have the, the full set. That's right. That's right. That's right. And I think, and, and, you know, what interests me yeah. is that it's all done unintentionally. Yeah. So he doesn't kill under the description killing my father. He doesn't yes. marry and have sex right. under the description incestuous romance. Yes. He doesn't pursue like all of the things that he's pursuing right. under the description, you know, I don't know, path to my own destruction. Right. <laughs> I yes. mean it's all yeah. it's all completely unintentional. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't matter no, it doesn't. in a sense. Because the crime is real, right? Uh, your father is still your father. Your mother is still your mother. Your children are still your children. And you might, yeah, we might say that we... It doesn't matter to the guilt that he feels. It doesn't matter, yeah. Right. Because, and I yeah. think, you know, there are these cases like this. And we talk about this in the philosophical literature, right? right? Cases where through no fault of your own, you kill your own child. Right. That's, I mean, you're you're obviously still going to feel guilty, right? And bear the burden of that, mm-hmm. and it is this kind of, you know, unbelievably tragic thing. Can't be undone. It can't be undone. There's no escaping it. You can't. I mean, you can't. There's no consolation no, yeah. in telling yourself, "Oh, I didn't mean to do it." Yeah. And I think, you know, that's precisely why Williams calls it dark fiction. Yes. Like it, it, it does in a way kind of unmask or pierce the veil of maybe some comforting illusions. Yeah. Well, I mean, so it gets back to this idea of guilt. Yeah, right? exactly. Is, is Oedipus guilty? And is it guilt? Is that the burden that he has to bear alone? Is yeah. it his guilt? Because he ruined the city, because he, you know, is just a monster. Wow, right. And there's clearly some kind of guilt. It's not the neat guilt, we might say, that one might get from the ethics, right? Aristotle's ethics. So, you know, you know what you're doing and you're doing it willingly. That's right. Um, It's not voluntary. So it's not that, right. And yet, and yet it's still true (laughs) that I... I'm the one who destroyed my parents, who has stained my children. And you can't get away from that. And I think that there's there's this kind of a deep truth that to be in human life, uh, to be in this world, (laughs) means that you can't get away from the stains. If Williams, for example, is talking about the, the myth of order or the myth of control, I think Cowan would say the myth at the end is the myth of innocence. That we think that we can just be innocent of what is happening in the world, even as we benefit from it, for example. So if we take, for, I mean, this is a kind of potentially freighted uh, or weighted issue. I mean, all these conversations these days about systemic guilt or communal guilt and systemic injustice. I mean, a nice way of thinking about it might be Shirley Jackson's The Lottery, right? Mm, that yeah. here mm-hmm. we, have, we have a community that is living off something that's perverse. And they seem to be kind of innocent because they don't know why they do this. They just know they have to do it. The Lottery just makes explicit what often happens for us every day, 
right? Mm -hmm. That there's poor people dying every day, there's sick people dying every day, that the kind of life we have, civilization, (laughs) any civilization you want, has been built on some shady stuff. Mm-hmm. And we just have to be honest about that. And it's not enough to say, I wasn't there. I'm not the one who did it. <laughs> right. You've inherited this. Mm-hmm. And and this is important. I mean, Cowan says it's interesting that tragedy only happens in the city uh, as an art form, right? And in a way, mm-hmm. that means it only happens where people have come together and built something. And probably to build that thing, bad things need to have been done. And need is a strong word there. But so this notion of there is guilt uh, of various kinds that the reason why things are going wrong in our lives, we can't just neatly lay it on other people's feet, for sure. But even the things that we enjoy innocently might not be so innocent. And those two points, I think, are are true. And Mm -hmm. at least in Oedipus's case, the first one is more obvious that, yes, he didn't do this voluntarily, but he still did it, and it was still horrific. And it's, it's very little consolation to say, it's a very cheap consolation to say, well, you didn't choose to. Mm-hmm. Sure, but you still did it. And that's the scary it, thing about human life. Mm-hmm. Do you think that also part of him blinding himself, yeah. is it a kind of punishment? Oh. I mean, he just kind of does it, you know? He's like yeah. in a crazed... Yeah. State because Yocasta's hung herself and yeah. like he's just And everything's going wrong. The, yeah, yeah, things are things are going things, poorly. Everything's falling apart. Uh I mean it seems to be partly um it is sort of retributive, but not in an arbitrary way. I mean it seems to be it it the punishment seems to fit with everything that's been happening. Uh because the blindness stuff clearly fits with how he had been. But then there's the um, by blinding himself, he cuts himself off from his children. And by refusing to kill himself, he blind, he cuts himself off from his parents. Right? He's not going to go face his parents. He, he's not going to face his children. So he cuts himself off from, from the line, right? Uh, which is sort of an interesting image. Or he's attempting to do that. He's, try, he's attempting to isolate himself. So it, it feels a lot like he's trying to imprison himself. Uh, and and or maybe contain himself. So he's realizing I am the pollutant. And again, we need to quarantine this guy. <laughs> and the whole it has a whole imagery of isolation, quarantine, remove this polluting element, and then mm-hmm. cast it out of the city. Yeah, he is the disease. The he sickness. is the disease. Yeah, and yeah. For just it just so happened that he was invisible in a way for most of the play, and then he was made visible, and then he realized how ugly he was, and doesn't want to look, and now needs to be cast out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it does feel like a punishment, uh, both mm-hmm. the blinding, and then he begs Creon, "You need to exile me." So again, he cuts himself mm-hmm. off from family, and then he cuts himself off from city. So yeah, it looks like uh, it does look like punishment. Yeah. So let's talk about what kind of wisdom that he gets. So if so, if Cowan. So just to return back to the Cowan. So she's right. Then there's been this unmasking, and and that seems yes, obvious. (laughs) Something has an illusion has been pierced. The mask has been ripped off. Right. And he sees himself as he really is. Right. And Yocasta was exactly right. You don't want to know what kind of man you actually are. Or yeah. you don't, I think she says, you don't want to know the man you are. Right. So now he sees 
And so, so on, on her kind of take of tragic art, he has now looked into the vasty deeps of the abyss, the tragic abyss. And so he's supposed to now have a kind of wisdom. So there's something that he sees. There's something that the audience is supposed to see. Yes. And what does he see? Right. So, so like one candidate for what he sees. So there's a really interesting line from the chorus. Uh So this is 1190. So this, this is my translation. Alas, you generations of men, even while you live, you are next to nothing. Has any man won for himself more than a shadow of happiness, a shadow that swiftly fades away. Oedipus, now, as I look on you, see your Mm -hmm. ruin how can I say that mortal man can be happy? Is that what he sees? Yeah. Is that what we're supposed to see? What is the wisdom? There's supposed to be some kind of wisdom yeah. here. So I think an important distinction with Cowan, which is sort of crucial, is this is on page 14 of her essay, about halfway down the page. She says, as an art form, tragedy helps its viewers not its protagonists, look upon violence and turn away from it freed and content. And then on the next page, she says, for a moment, we glimpse ourselves as full participants within the accused and splendid human race. And then she talks about the purgation of the polis and so on. So Cowan seems to say there's the viewer and there's a protagonist and the viewer will be both the chorus and the audience. And so, yeah, I think the the chorus is right, that when the chorus contemplates Oedipus and when we contemplate Oedipus, we realize that a lot of what we think is human happiness and human security and human perfectibility, <laughs> these are just shadows. Um, and they're fragile, they're brittle, and the right pressure at the right time, it all comes down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the wisdom maybe we come away with. And it makes us maybe more humble then and more wise because all of a sudden we realize, okay, we're, we're, not, as, we're not as hot stuff as we maybe were inclined to believe we were, despite mm. whatever successes we've had in the past. What Oedipus sees is way more mysterious, right? Because we don't really go all the way. We, with the chorus, are right. watching him. And what does he see? I mean, he sees... He gets to see the ruins directly. And I don't know what he does with that. And the the unfairness of it, maybe? So this is line 1271. This is the report by, I think, the messenger of what Oedipus is saying in his kind of crazy, crazy rage as he pokes out his eyes. He He says 1271. You will never see the crime I have committed. So he's talking to his eyes. You will never see the crime I have committed or had done upon me. So Oedipus sees himself at the same time as active and passive, as both villain and victim. And that's why we can't just say, oh, yeah, look at you, tragic flaw. No, he's actually been victimized in a, in a way. And I don't know what he's supposed to do with that, to be honest. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, well, Oedipus Rex alone is not going to solve that for us. Oedipus at Colonus, 
the gods, having contemplated him in his suffering, will now choose to raise him and make him blessed, but not in this play. <laughs> right. So I think he's seen that there's just something fundamentally bent about human experience, that we're both villain and victim. And what do you do with that? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, you, yeah. Well, there's supposed to be, from yeah. Cowan's perspective, there's right. supposed to be a kind of purgation. Right. A cleansing of the soul, she says. Yes, yes. That presumably is part of the process of becoming more wise. Right. And yeah. is also somehow supposed to be related to its liturgical dimension. Yes. Right, yeah. And, you know, what... Can can we try to connect those? Oh. Yeah, but I think, especially if it's liturgical, right? It's going to be liturgical for the for the participants. And the participants are properly speaking the audience, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so in some ways, Oedipus is maybe, and it's he's exactly right, he's a kind of icon. We're supposed to look upon him and contemplate the darkness of human life, right? That um, we are not innocent, we are not in control, that we are living among ruins. And that has to be, we have to, we have to look at that and, and take that in. And so we, and we do that um, seasonally, let's say. And so there's a liturgical thing. We go to the tragic festival every so often and mm-hmm. we present ourselves to these, to these performances. So we're, we're like a congregation or we're like the audience and we're the ones being purified. The icon itself doesn't get purified, I guess. I mean, uh, I, I'm not... Well, yeah, uh, I mean, it's not... Yeah. It's not, uh, it's not real, it's not real, exactly. Yeah. But there's also part of it is it's contemplation, right. but there is a shared pity and terror. Exactly. Yeah. That and I think shared is doing a lot of work there. Yes. So whereas Oedipus is an isolation, like we right. are somehow supposed to share yeah. this pity and terror at what has been revealed. Right, exactly. And that's supposed to be part of the soul cleansing, mm-hmm. <laughs> that pity and terror. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, maybe another way of asking the question is right. what is it about tragic art in particular oh. that is doing this in a way that like an, a philosophical essay about it can't? Right. So, like, I could read Bernard Williams on dark yeah, fiction yeah. or I could read Louise Cowan about tragedy, tragic vision, the tragic abyss. Yeah. But it wouldn't be a substitute for the liturgy. No, no. And I think it'll come back to just the, sort of the nature of art and in, in a nice way, the nature of drama, because we're getting, we get to experience the thing and not just talk about the thing. It's going to be, well, come as close to experiencing the thing as the chorus can get or as the audience can get, rather than we're not dealing with ideas, we're not dealing with concepts. We're trying to come as close as we can to look upon what is happening and looking upon ourselves. 
and you really get to feel the danger of lack of self-knowledge, for example. You get to feel the danger of going through life deluded about how wise you are, like Oedipus, and this is unmasked uh, painfully right at the end, and you realize, I think that kind of washes out, out of the play into the audience, and then you realize, yeah, in what ways am I like Oedipus? Mm-hmm. In what ways do I go about life, do I go about life way too confident in my power or way too confident in my wisdom? Because uh, mm-hmm. one of the nice things about art in general, and I mean, this is a drama, but we'll, we'll kind of join drama and literature for a second is, it gives us patterns of way patterns for actually interpreting not not just interpreting but patterns for making intelligible our experience. So, for example, you read Jane Austen, and you realize there are Mister Collins in the world, right? <laughs> and yeah. there are Elizabeths in the world, and there are Wickhams in the world, and so on, right? And now you realize there are Oedipuses in the world, and am I one of them? Yeah. I mean, on some level, yeah. On some level, yeah. But now you get to realize, what does that mean? What am I doing to myself? What am I doing to the world? What am I doing to my relationships? If that's how I'm going through life. And the the experience of the art is not going to be as neat and sterile, let's say, as just reading an essay. Where it's, the essay is safe. Because it's nice, it's neat, it's definitions, Mm -hmm. uh, it's arguments. Whereas this is witnessing. Uh, right. So the, the mediation is so reduced right. that you're almost the one going through it, and hence right. the pity and, and the terror. Right. Well, it's it's kind of interesting. I always imagine, like, talking to a Kantian about tragedy, <laughs> just, like, how weird it would be. Yeah. But it's also a little bit uncomfortable, I think, for an Aristotelian. Yeah. You know, because it's like happiness is is the goal. Yeah, yeah. And if it turns out that, you know, at best you have a shadow and really like, really you just have to stare into the abyss and cry, that's difficult for us as well. And yes. so it's hard. And, you know, Arist- I mean, Aristotle obviously is, is reckoning with, with tragedy as an art right. form. And yeah. But I just wonder if Cowan's vision of tragedy doesn't put a lot of pressure on Aristotle's own treatment of it. Right. Um, I mean, my sense would be... um, Well, it's interesting, because Aristotle clearly has no issues with it. He thinks it's a great art form. It's fantastic, probably the best. So he thinks it clearly fits within the polis. Uh, in a way that maybe Plato is most skeptical, which is interesting, and we may kind of flip back to that in a second. Um, but Cowan's treatment, I think, still has room maybe to accommodate most of the Aristotelian picture in the sense that she does say the abyss shows us that we are in, we're living among ruins. And so we're not just living in total darkness or total chaos. So what the ruins point out is there is a fundamental goodness that has been corrupted, has been wounded, has been broken in some way. And this is also what makes possible redemption and reconciliation in tragedies like um, 
the Eumenides, at the end of the Oresteia, or Oedipus at Colonus. Um, so some tragedies actually end with a kind of hopeful note. And that's possible because we're, we're still in a, in, a, in a ruined world, not in a meaningless world. So the Aristotelian picture, I think, can still say, well, okay, so tragedy, therefore, it actually does something good. It's actually good for the polis. Uh, it makes it stronger. Well, Maybe it's even he, good for virtue. I mean, he th- he has this idea about catharsis, right? Maybe yeah, we should exactly. explain that. Oh, my God. Well, sure. <laughs> so <clears throat> the problem is people have different ideas of what it means. Who cares? But, What's your... Okay, very quick. Aristotle, yeah, one of the, one of the, the chief effect of tragedy is catharsis uh, that is affected through uh, fear and pity. Uh, so in catharsis, we translate more or less as purification. Mm-hmm. So people read this in different ways. Uh, some people say it's about just getting the feelings of fear and pity out of you or getting the darkness out of you. And I'm not sure that necessarily means you're purified. I'm more likely to incline in the direction of there's a restoration of a kind of psychological equilibrium. So you become healthier, hopefully. Uh, so more in the Cowan direction, I guess. At least I think that's what she's saying. So if what tragedy well-received and well-experienced does make us more humble, does give us a sort of kind of wisdom that is actually a kind of Socratic kind of wisdom that we actually don't know what's going on. <laughs> mm-hmm. And we should, be less, uh, we should be less sure about our sciences, we should be less sure about our politics, we should be less sure about our wisdom, and so on and so forth. I would say we're purified of delusions and, and maybe even inclinations to kind of action that is damaging mm-hmm. uh, would be wh- how I would maybe prefer it. And this is good both for the individual. I think it's also good for the city. Well, let's talk about what tragedy not well-received might look like. So you uh, can imagine like okay. yeah. at the end of this play just being like, well, human life is ridiculous yeah. and meaningless. Yeah. Exactly. Because yeah. it turns out maybe it, it, it just turns out that maybe there's nothing I can do yeah. and it's just all going to go to hell. So why bother? Right. I'm just going to live a life of pleasure and hope for the best. Yes. Uh, li- live a life of chance. And like, like if you're literally telling me mortal man only has a shadow of happiness. Yeah. Then why bother? I think fundamentally, now we're going to sort of slide slightly from the Oedipus picture to a slightly more kind of Socratic or Platonic picture. Okay, let's do that really fast. <laughs> Very, really fast, really fast. Yeah. Uh, I think Plato's right on this, and Aristotle kind of uh, inherits, inherits it, is we do nevertheless have, when we're rational, And not only are we rational, our minds are erotic minds. So if there isn't truth out there, then what the heck does it mean to be rational? (laughs) And and we have a desire for truth. We have a desire for knowing. We have a desire for understanding. But this is just basic human orientations. Mm -hmm. If you read the tragedy wrongly, right, um, and you declare it's all meaningless, Mm -hmm. then I think you have to say then... Um, what does even hoping for the best really mean? Uh, it doesn't have real content. It just might go with, 
I just want to have enjoyable experiences. Uh, but it means no meaning to what you're doing, no direction to what you're doing. It's, uh, it's a fractured life because there's nothing that's going to give it shape. There's nothing that's going to give it direction. And so then a, a fractured life and ultimately, I suppose, a fractured self because there's nothing in you f fundamentally that also is going to hold together. And I think that's what you will be sort of betting on ultimately. Uh, that a, a cosmos that has no order means eventually lives that don't have order and eventually persons that don't have order. And so <clears throat> then you should just stop talking at that point because why even speak? <laughs> uh, that it's all just uh, meaningless. Well, and we maybe. rebel against that as human beings. That you will always be in tension with uh -huh. just human impulses. Human impulses for meaning, understanding, love, communion. That you will forever be living in tension with internal basic human orientation. Uh -huh. And so you'll always be living a frustrated life at a, at a certain level. And I just think maybe that that's... just doesn't work. Yeah. But I just, feel, I mean, yeah. just to play devil's advocate. Advocate like... away. Yes. I feel like a lot of people might rather live a frustrated life of pleasure than stare into the ungodly abyss. Oh, yeah. And that's I mean, where... it's just, I mean, it's just take the basic setup of the matrix. It's like, yes. there's, oh, God. there's this one guy who's like, yeah, I'm yeah. tired of the truth. It actually really sucks. And uh, just plug me back in. Like, like right. he's like, I don't care that this steak isn't real. It tastes yeah. good. And yeah, I mean, if if reality is is genuinely yeah. terrifying, right. why shouldn't Oedipus? Why 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 shouldn't the result be that you know what? Yocasta was the only wise person. She's like, hey, <laughs> we don't need to know this. What's the point? Yeah, We're let's fine. move on. <laughs> We're fine. It's fine. Right. And we can't really give an argument against nihilism, I don't think, other than you would have to repudiate yourself, right? Like the Matrix guy. You have to repudiate yeah. yourself and live with the consequences of that. Yeah. The only thing I would say is we need to learn how to read or watch tragedy the right way. Right. And, and Oedipus, in a way, is himself maybe a picture of the difficulty involved. And, and his response maybe is not a great response. It's not a good response. It's not a healthy response. Uh, I mean, I like to... It's interesting. I mean, as philosophers, maybe we, we often think, especially when we're doing the whole let's defend liberal arts game, we talk about, oh, it's lovely. <laughs> Contemplation's lovely. It's so great. <clears throat> Do philosophy, kids. But if we're being honest, there are times when you do philosophy when you come upon things that are threatening. They're threatening to your identity, you're threatening to your understanding of the world, and they are painful to face. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. And that's real. And, I mean, we don't talk about that as often because we're, we're being salesmen, maybe. Yeah. But, um, but this is a real thing. And yeah. Oedipus gets broken by the truth, in a way. And I think those of us who are serious philosophers have to say, there is a risk that, uh, it's not even a risk, it's a high probability that you'll come upon painful, really painful truths. Oh, yeah. No. I mean, sorry, this is, like, yeah. I completely agree. I mean, I yeah. just sort of think if you're doing anything right in life, it, it hurts. Right. 
Yeah. But, um, and the response is not to say, oh, it's painful, let me run away, but we have to say the pain is worth it. There's something beyond the pain that is really what we're after. That's tricky. But what you learn, I think, which Oedipus hasn't learned, is because Oedipus takes himself too seriously. Maybe that's going back to the hubris thing. That if you were to compare for a very briefly, say, Oedipus and Socrates... Socrates can be refuted. Socrates can be unveiled as wrong in the Phaedo many times. And he's like, I'm, I'm having a great time. <laughs> mm-hmm. Keep showing me that I am wrong. This is the most fun I have had in a really long time. Yeah. And he can do this because he can, he can balance two things. He can talk about serious things and not take himself seriously. Mm-hmm. And to do philosophy, you kind of need that sort of looseness. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you take yourself too seriously... When you're doing the serious things, you're likely to be burdened and broken by the things you, you come upon, mm-hmm. which is, I think, is what happens to what sort of happens to Oedipus. So the Greeks have this lovely word, um, spudaio geloion. Uh, so geloion is the ridiculous, spudaion is the, the weighty or the serious uh-huh. or something. Yeah. And so someone like Aristophanes, for example, is, is a playwright who does a lot of the sort of spudaio geloion stuff that he yeah. talks about important political things, but he does it in a nice way so people can actually be able to take the medicine. (laughs) That's right. And Socrates is sort of that way as a philosopher, right? He's always making fun of himself, he's always making jokes, but he's dealing with really serious stuff, political, ethical, whatever, metaphysical. And Oedipus isn't really in that zone. And and we need to kind of teach people to be in that zone. There's some Mm -hmm. really dark, serious things we're going to see, but if we're not kind of brittle and really uh, rigid... We can actually take it when the truth comes at us and reveals things about ourselves that are incredibly painful. Right. Yeah. Right. So yeah. that's that's maybe the, the kind of two cents pitch I would give on. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, one of the reasons why I am pressing this is just because yeah. I, I did this episode with Damon Linker on Eugene okay. O'Neill, the plays of Eugene O'Neill, and I okay. feel like he... I feel like he sort of takes the tragic vision in a much darker nihilistic direction. Right, yeah. And so, you know, there's always this question, like, why isn't that wrong? And I think that when we think about tragedy, and and here there might be... And then, and then we're going to have to wrap this up because yeah. I could mm-hmm. literally talk about this <laughs> until I pass out. But Yes, yeah. But that's a little gratuitous. But yeah. I think, you know... When we're just talking about tragedy in this unqualified way, a lot gets glossed over that's actually really complicated. And that would be the difference between what tragedy would mean for the Greeks, Mm -hmm. what tragedy would mean in Christendom, and what it means in secular modernity. Right. And I am super attracted to the view that, you know, these aren't just like equivocal senses of tragic, that there is some... Yeah that there is something in virtue of which it's correct to say that Mm -hmm. these are all tragic, but I think that it's just going to be in a different register depending on your commitments about transcendent things. Yeah. And yeah, sort of like how you deal with the darkness, which I think is real, or like how you respond to yeah. what is unveiled yeah. is definitely going to de- be dependent on your other commitments. And yeah. So anyway, this was like amazing and fun. No, thank and you. is there, is there any final 
Is there parting, any final, parting Is there thoughts? any final tragic wisdom you would like to leave uh, us with? Maybe just one in the response to the uh, Eugene O'Neill thing is, at least I think for the Greeks and the Christians, something can't be actually tragic if there isn't an order behind it. That What tragedy brings out is the wrongness of things, among other things. But there can't be wrongness unless there's something uh, against which it can be found to be wrong or bent or broken. Mm-hmm. So if you want to kind of go all the way into, you know, total darkness, then in a way you're not really tragic anymore. It's just absurd. And it's just pure Heraclitus flux and no meaning, no order, and therefore no wrongness. It's just maybe painful, but it's not tragic. And I think that'll be a nice distinction between the painful and the tragic, and for at least for the Greeks and the Christians, going back to that Cowan idea of the ruins, the ruins mean there is an order to things. That's right. Um, and if there isn't an order to things, then there isn't real tragedy. Okay, that's super helpful. Yeah. Okay, good. All right. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. No, this was lovely. Uh, I was enjoyed myself a lot. Thank you. You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy, theology, and literature podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute of Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America and produced by Catholics for Hire a group of young Catholic digital content freelancers. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can find us over at www.patreon.com slash eudaimoniapod to become a monthly patron. You can start at just $2 a month. And I'd like to thank our most recent patrons for their monthly support. So thanks go to Lawrence Bloom, James Carpenter, Daniel Johnson, John Michaud, Chad Wellman, Tyson Duffy, and Ryan Lindsay. For our next episode, I'll be joined by Professor Roosevelt Montas of Columbia University to discuss his new book, Rescuing Socrates. Until then, friends, be well and keep reading.